The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal partner, my co-host, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. We would like to proudly assert that we are the one entity on the internet that seeks to communicate with you, that respects your time and your credulity not to mess with you on April Fool's. Whether or not that is sincere, of course, is up to you, but that would lead to an irresolvable paradox. At any rate, we are going to be talking about games this week, just as we always do. We're going to talk about games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game of the week, which is going to be Space Alert by Vladikvatl. And then we're going to have our feature topic, which is multiplayer conflict games. Their problems, how to overcome them, and general shenanigans thereof. So with that in mind, let us begin with the games that we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Uh, Last week, we were on our fifth game of Agents of Smog. It's going pretty well. I really like how the story is developing and how it's introducing all the new monsters and stuff. So even though I wasn't pleased with the new combat system or the lack of a new combat system, I'm still enjoying the storyline. And you find that's enough to take you through the... I really do. Okay. I haven't been around the past couple of weeks because I've been busy on the, uh, the smog nights. I can't say I've missed it very much, but I'll probably get back into it just to see how things conclude. You know, show up at the end, claim all the credit. That's right. Be the the you know the the ambulance chaser at the end. Sure, but has it in, have has any of the scenarios been genuinely memorable? Have there been any scenario setups where you look at it and say, "Oh, that's that's clever, that's good." Unfortunately, not. It's it's much like uh, you know Japanese animation where it's this is here's now we're ready for the swimsuit episode. Now we're ready for the recap episode. Now we're ready. Yes, yeah, the standard. You know, every scenario has the rescue mission. I have no the... idea what you're talking... What do you mean the swimsuit episode? <laughs> that makes no sense to me. I know, it doesn't make any sense. What's it's, the it's swimsuit the scenario? Every, every every anime that you watch, it always has, you know, about you know 11 to 9 episodes in, it'll have the swimsuit episode where they all go to the beach. We clearly watch very different media. <laughs> it's probably true. Okay, so in the context of Smog, what's the swimsuit scenario? Well, not so much the swimsuit, but I mean like okay. the standard, you know... Uh, storyline you know save you know everyone's in a different room save them and then all the heroes are in different rooms bring them back together you know this person's knocked out go save them type thing and you know the standard fare okay yeah i've seen the escort i've seen the siege i've seen the brawl exactly it's a good thing we don't have a tv podcast walker because i don't think (laughs) i want to hear what you've been watching what did you play mark well we played a game of concordia concordia is uh, one of the games by my favorite designer working today, Matt Gertz. Full disclosure, I was a playtester on Concordia. I also helped edit the rulebook. 
Concordia seems to be getting the credit it deserves recently in that a lot of people seem to be acknowledging its greatness and giving Mac credit for how great it is. I'm of, uh, I'm strangely conflicted about this, this recent notoriety. Number one, I'm wondering where Mac's fame was all along. This is the guy who gave us Antica. This is the guy who gave us Imperial, which are two of my top 10 favorite games of all time. And uh, Navigador, I think, is also better than Concordia, which is to say Concordia is an excellent, excellent design, but I don't think it's anywhere near Mac's best. But uh, anyway, the wisdom of the crowds can't be wrong. And Concordia, although I always enjoy it, it never quite seems to fire on all cylinders. Mechanically, it's very solid. It's very smooth. It's very good. And But after every game of Concordia, I wonder why it isn't really singing the way all, all of other Mac's designs are. I think it might have to do with the scoring. Concordia has a relatively complicated scoring system, and just trying to pick up on a topic we we talked about a while ago about scoring systems, it's all hidden trackable information, but it's sufficiently opaque that even you as the player can't even really keep track of what you're scoring for. You can get a vague idea, you know, you can develop a heuristic, it's like, I want to go for colonists in Concordia, or I want to settle a lot of different provinces in Concordia, or something like that. But at the end of the day, you're probably going to be scoring a little bit for everything, and it's a whole bunch of math, and anyway, it's not particularly hard to to calculate at the end of the game, but it's really hard to calculate in the middle of the game. So it's hard to get a good sense of what you're going after. So that, I think, might help contribute to why I think it's a little less focused and tight than his his other top-tier designs. But every game by Mac Ertz is worth playing, yeah, as far as I'm concerned. It was my first game. I really love it. It's a great hand, uh, hand management game where you get all of your actions and then you pick up your whole deck and, and go through it again. And I found it odd that it had a scoring track on the board. I meant to ask you if that was like a... You know, if we were playing a variant or, you know, with one of the expansions we were playing with, that's why we weren't using it. It's odd that a game that all of the scoring done is at the end and it goes so high that it even has a scoreboard on the map. Okay, so I I can explain that a scoring track is helpful at the end of the game because you can score different categories at a time and keep track of them, so it obviates the need for a score pad. But, of course, it seems like every Euro game has a score pad now, so uh, that wouldn't be the issue. The so-called beginner's way to play is after you play your first Tribune card in Concordia, the first time you take all your cards back, you're supposed to do a mid-game scoring and see how many points you have then. And based on how well you're doing at that point, you get some bonus money. And this is intended to do two things. It's less about the money, but that's part of it. That's the first thing. The second thing that's more important is you're supposed to get a sense of how well you're doing relative to everybody else. I don't do it for two reasons. Number one, it busts up the tempo really badly because one of the virtues of Concordia is that it plays really smoothly and cleanly. You play a card, do what it says it does. Next player plays a card, does what it says it does, etc. Relatively short turns, much like uh, Matt Gertz's other Rondel games. But also, you really don't get a good sense after the first Tribune is really early in the game. You play your first Tribune very quickly, and so it doesn't give you a good sense of what's going on. And then you end up, you possibly end up, again, to dovetail something we talked about before about scoring systems, you end up with this permanent monument of who was doing well a long time ago, which insofar as there's any direct competition with players might give you the wrong impression. So I've I've never bothered with it past the initial playtests. Of course, when doing playtests, you play with the rules as published, but I've never done the initial scoring because I don't think it's particularly helpful. If people ask for it, I'll do it, but it, it just seems like a distraction. Yeah, I'll chime in on the smoothness for sure, because if unless you're doing the move action, move and build, then 
you can start your turn right after the other player has announced what they're doing, right? Because there's very, I guess that could be good or bad, right? Thing that sort of reflects back on its player interaction, yeah. right? So the fact that you can do almost anything without any repercussions means that there's very little interaction, but I really didn't feel that in the game that much. There's slightly more competition in Concordia than your average worker placement or deck builder game, insofar as building sites are valuable and you can stake out good building sites early. One of the players at the table definitely felt the benefit of that. He had the special power that increased his movement capability, so very early on he was able to spread out to remote areas of the map and stake his claim before any of us got there. Now, you can show up later, it's just more expensive, and so it'll be more difficult. It's also the case that you're competing to buy cards, because at the end of the day in Concordia, you're probably going to win if you buy more cards than everybody else. And if you're able to snag the cards that other people want, then you're going to do well. Of course, as I said, it's tough to tell what cards you want. More is always better. You're never going to regret buying a card, generally speaking. Yeah, Concordia is great. It's, I I always, I, I don't even know why I'm slightly disappointed after every time I play. I think partially it's because, again, there's this perception that Concordia is Mac's best game. And I don't even think it's his top three. Which is just to say that Matt Gertz is a brilliant designer and everything he makes is fantastic. But... I always enjoy Concordia. There are a whole bunch of variant maps, and I do like the different variant maps. We played a very simple one, namely Crete, which is one of the new ones. I'm never disappointed that we played Concordia. I just It never seems to quite reach the heights that I think it, it deserves to, and I'm, I'm hard-pressed to fully explain why. All right, the next on my list is Meeple Circus. I've talked about Meeple Circus before. Fantastic dexterity game where you, you stack acrobats and elephants and other circus animals and score points. And the only reason I mention it is because it, I find it odd that it plays differently with so many different groups. Like in some groups, when we get to the end, everyone gets their own turn. Like normally you you play three rounds, the first two rounds, everyone does at the same time. And then the final round, everyone gets their own few minutes. In some groups, they just think that's going to take way too long. They just want to get on with it and get over with. Whereas the group I played with this week... It was their favorite part of the game where they all, you know, it upped the tension. Everyone's watching. Everyone's laughing. It, it just, it, it was very interesting on how differently it played. Who are the people that don't want to do the sequential third phase? Well, I, I, it could have been because it was in a, in a, in a convention type atmosphere, like a gaming day. Maybe they just wanted to get on with the next game. And maybe I think when I explained it, it reads that everyone gets five minutes, but no one takes the full time, right? So maybe they just didn't understand that, you know, you, you build your structure, you're done. Usually you do it in quarter to half of the time that is allotted to you. That's bizarre because normally I'm the killjoy that wants to move on and get to the next thing. No. But in Meeple Circus, as you say, it's sufficiently quick and it's fun watching people grapple with their own unique set of restrictions because in Meeple Circus, indeed, in the last round, everybody builds their structure a little bit differently, not just in terms of the structure itself, but in terms of the constraints they're under. So I I feel I feel sorry for these people who are like, look, this uh, this this Meeple stacking game with tigers and strongmen is all well and good. But, uh, you know, I've got a, I've got an appointment to get to. So let's 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 hurry it along. Shall we? And the stress is real when everyone's watching, you, you know, might think it's not that big a deal, but it really is. Yeah. What else do you have on your list? Played another game of Clans of Caledonia. This is the Euro game by Juma El Juju and Karma Games that seeks to be, or at least very much seems to be, a slight economic variation on Terra Mystica. And my initial impressions was that it was very, very similar to Terra Mystica, slightly better in terms of a slightly different and better building differentiation and a slightly better economic model, a little more robust, a little more interesting. And sure enough, that's the case. But uh, I, I've, I've got to say one thing that Terra Mystica does in terms of, and Gaia Project too, of course, is it gives you a slightly greater sense of variety in the different special powers. I, I've complained in the past that they tend to 
make dictate your strategy to you rather than opening up options. It seems to narrow options, and that's very much true. But it does help the replayability. And Clans of Caledonia, having played a, a, a handful of times now, every play feels more or less the same. Maybe you have a slight variation of what buildings you want to uh, build. If you're the clan that really, really likes milk, you'll put out more cows. If you're the clan that really, really likes whiskey, you'll put out more distilleries, things like that. It does allow you to be a little bit more reactive in terms of how the market's operating, but Clans of Caledonia is really solid, reasonably engaging, a little bit dry, and although I prefer it to Terra Mystica, I don't know how many more plays of it it's, uh, it's going to have for me. We also played Rum and Bones Second Tide again. I'd commented that there were post-Kickstarter expansions. A viewer pointed out that the miniatures games, the tabletop miniatures games that Simon has put out, namely Wrath of Kings and Dark Age, those have both had post-Kickstarter releases as well. But in terms of board games, I still haven't seen any examples of Simon putting out expansions that were not included in the Kickstarter if the board game was initially launched in Kickstarter. So anyway, we tried those two post-launch expansions, the new faction, Hammers of Ragnarok, the Vikings. I'm continually surprised at how different the factions feel. For a game that is about chucking lots of dice and with lots of plastic, Rum and Bones is less stupid than it should be. And the Viking faction is all about hero kills. I didn't play that to the full extent because I also played with some of the new mercenaries. For those of you that don't know how Roman Bones works in your crew, you can include mercenaries. And because it's a Kickstarter project from Simon, there are roughly, what was it, 732 mercenaries, I think? At any rate, so there's a lot of different ways to, to build, uh, to build your, your crew. And so I didn't play all Vikings. And that kind of blunted, actually based on just how the mechanics work, it kind of blunted the effect of that. So you're kind of encouraged to run an all-Viking crew if you're playing with the Vikings, which is not ideal. I really liked all the new characters. Uh, you tried out a new crew as well, the undead. The undead feel very undead. They just overwhelm you with swarms of crew. The Vikings love killing and uh, killing heroes and being killed in turn. I really like Rum and Bones. It's, as I say, cleverer than it should be. And I've always had a good time when it hits the table. Yeah, much like Shadespire, where they have much, you know, a whole bunch of different ways in which to balance the game. They have a lot of different ways to incorporate the theme into the game, right? The every every faction has their own spell deck or whatever you want to tide cards. Tide called. cards. Uh, they every faction has their own set of heroes that they can choose from. Although they can pick mercenary ones on top of that, and each of those heroes has their own unique powers, which also incorporate the theme. So. I think they did a fantastic job. I'm enjoying it every time I play it. Even the ships for every faction are different. Like some, the main, I think the main game comes with two large ships and you sort of attack each other. But some of the other factions have like three little ships or two ships or I really like how they, they mixed it up with the, with the different ships and the different styles of play. Yeah, they did a really good job. Finally, I pl uh, pulled out a solo game. I played Warfighter. This is by Dan Verson at uh, DVG, DVG standing for Dan Verson Games. This is the publisher of Dan Verson Games that publishes the games by Dan Verson. And Warfighter is a solo or multiplayer game about, well, not to put too fine a point on it, the, the more violent uh, exertions of American geopolitical might. At any rate, there's a World War II version that I don't like as much. I don't feel it gives you as much variety. But Warfighter is in many ways kind of like a solo miniatures game in that you get a bunch of points at the start of the game and you buy a squad and you outfit them. And that's the part that I love. I love shopping in games like this, especially when you have a plethora of options and you get to, to, to kit people out exactly the way you want and try different builds and there's lots of variety. 
And Warfighter has a billion expansions, and if you've gone all in like I have, you truly have a large wealth of options. I've also blinged out Warfighter with these Mega Bloks action figures. So as a result, after I buy all my, my soldiers and equip them, I then get to put these little, they're, they're kind of like Lego minifigs, but more elaborated. And then I get to make them WYSIWYG. It's like, put, put a shotgun on the shotgun guy, and this is the guy with the two mines, so put a couple mines on his hips. It's great. I love it. It's fabulous. I get to play with toys while I'm playing Warfighter. Always a good time. I played it I played it in multiplayer a couple times, and I was surprised at how well it worked. Warfighter is shockingly versatile. It's not the deepest game in the world. It's and it's more about the shopping than it is about the actual mission. Running the mission feels more like an elaborated resolution sequence to see if you've actually done it. But you know, you, you get to play cards and get to fire all your cool guns and manage your ammo and actions and things like that. So it's not trivial. It's just mostly for me it's it's about buying the, the soldiers and then outfitting them. I, I posted a picture on Twitter of my squad. Uh, all lined up at the start card with their little plastic weapons and and so forth. So I had a, I had a good time with Warfighter. Good stuff. And that are that's the games we played this week. And on to the news and why it does not matter. So we don't have much news this week, in part because perhaps people were just busy reporting on April Fools. I didn't even actually parenthetically. I didn't even really see any good April Fool stuff this year. BGG sometimes rolls out some good stuff. I, I remember getting Troll old a few years ago. That was fun. My favorite board game pub in Montreal, uh, the Randolph, which was actually opened up by a friend of mine, Joel Gagnon, it ran an April's Fool, April Fool's joke about running a Monopoly tournament with real money. And so they said that everyone who showed up to the tournament had to show up with, you know, $100 bills, which of course is very difficult in Canada, you know, X number of $5 bills, X number of $10 bills, X number of $500 bills. It was, so that was, that was kind of clever. And the posted hours of the tournament was something along the lines of we'll start at 8 a.m. and we plan on going for four days. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. But other than that, I didn't see a whole lot in terms of the April Fool's front that, that, that particularly struck me. I don't know if you had any different experience. No, I didn't see any. I've, I played WoW for quite a few years and WoW always puts forth, you know, the effort. I didn't check in to see what they did this year, but they always put in a good effort on April Fool's Day. And uh, World of Tanks sometimes does a good thing, but I have not checked any of the any of the stuff for this year. Like one of my uh, news guys says, the the news feed has been all full of things that you couldn't believe in the first place. So April Fool's is just par for the course for this year. <laughs> sure. So in the actual news for this week, I have the expansion announced, another expansion announced for Mystic Veil. It seems like AEG is is uh, fully supporting this game, which is good. I really enjoy playing it. It's one of those just sort of sit down and enjoy it type games where you make, you know, these really cool combos. It's one of the deck building games where you put the translucent cards into the sleeves and you make all sorts of really cool combos on cards. And this one is called Twilight Garden by AEG. It was inevitable. Gloomhaven is getting expansions. The first expansion has been announced. It's called Forgotten Circles. It's going to have a new class and 20 new scenarios. For those of you who've played Gloomhaven, you probably know that the class differentiation of Gloomhaven is really, really impressive. Classes play very differently from each other, and even within a class, there are many different ways to approach it. And uh, I'm not too sure whether these scenarios are going to be exclusively for those who have finished the campaign, or whether you can integrate them if you haven't already finished the what, what's involved in the core box, which strikes me as kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario, because in Gloomhaven, there are already a bajillion scenarios and uh, maybe you want to get into the new stuff before you finish the old stuff. Anyway, I'm not sure if that'll be an option. So it's going to be released at Spiel, so it's going to be coming out this year, sometime after the summer. Looking forward to that. More Gloomhaven is always for the good. I'm I'm wondering if they'll put one of those, you know, like uh, 
class cards in the deck. So you can become the new class, maybe, if it comes up as one of your retirement cards. And then if you play the new scenarios, you can use it as a starting character, maybe. Maybe that's what they'll do. Who knows? Perhaps. I know that they've already there's already art publicly available, and they've already announced what the new class is. So it's not spoiler-locked like all the other expansion, well, expansion, like all the other advanced classes are, the so-called advanced classes. So they, they're not interested in hiding it. True. And that's all the news we've got for this week. Exciting, I know. On to our feature game, which is Space Alert. So when Vladik Vadal released Space Alert in 2008, he, was, he had already established himself as a pretty renowned game designer. He'd already released Galaxy Trucker the year before, and that sort of set the tone for an incredibly thinky, but nonetheless very, very funny madcap experience. And Space Alert was his foray into co-op gaming, which necessarily feels slightly different. And to a certain extent, this was still when people were in the design space of trying to figure out how to solve some of the perceived problems in co-op games introduced by games such as Pandemic or even Lord of the Rings. And the specific problem that many people find is what's either called the quarterbacking problem or the sock puppet problem or the alpha gamer problem, whatever you want to call it. I've talked before about how I think this is more a problem of gamers rather than games themselves, but suffice to say that many people think that it's quite a serious problem. The way that Space Alert sought to do it, and indeed this was one of the key goals of the design, was to avoid the quarterbacking problem by making quarterbacking effectively impossible. And they did this by introducing the real-time element. The notion here is that even if an alpha gamer is inclined to tell everyone else what to do, they will be literally, literally unable to by virtue of the time constraint. It also carried through the same sort of tone of Galaxy Trucker in the context of having absolutely hilarious rulebook. And the jokes there are particularly memorable. The, the, it carried through with Vlada's two-rulebook format, which Galaxy Trucker didn't do, but through the ages did, and uh, a number of his other designs continued to do, such as Mage Knight. And in the more tutorial-oriented teach-you-how-to-play version, it's delivered as this humorous introduction by a, 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 a squad commander who initially mistakenly thinks that he's here for the funeral of the previous crew that died horribly. Anyway, I'm not going to ruin the jokes by delivering them poorly, but suffice to say that it was a very, very good read. And this continued with Cavadal's design trend of, again, very in-depth, somewhat crunchy, but nonetheless extremely lighthearted games, which you have to admit is a very particular tone to strike, and not many other people have done it quite so successfully as he had. Dungeon Lords picked up this thread and continues with the same tone and the same gameplay style overall, but Space Alert remains Vlada's only major co-op design unless you count Mage Knight, which perhaps you should because Mage Knight is arguably best cooperative. But you cannot play Space Alert competitively at all. So it was relatively early in his design fame, and uh, it already had some of the hallmarks of his future designs. So what do you do in Space Alert, Walker? In Space Alert, it gives me this very much paranoia feel. If anyone's ever played the role-playing game Paranoia, where it feels as though you're totally out of control, where these they've put you on this ship with no training whatsoever, and they shoot you into space, and you're to get 10 minutes of, of readings from the outer sector, and then they're going to pull you back. And they know, and you know, but it is unspoken that more than likely you will not make it back. Or maybe... Maybe you don't know. So what you do in Space Alert is that there are 
you have a place on your board to put 12 cards and it all, it's into three different phases and the recording starts up and it'll tell you about all these threats that are coming in on the ship. It could be asteroids, it could be intruders on the ship, it could be viruses in your computer. Space octopus. Space octopus, giant space crab. could be anything. And while these things are happening, you're putting tokens on the board just to remind you in what phase out of the 12 that they're coming in on so you can sort of adapt. And and then you start putting down your action cards and the action cards are move left, move right, move up, move down, fire the guns. So you're trying to lay out a plan, much like Robo Rally, that you're going to deal with all these different threats and in and trying to time it correctly in the different phases that they're all coming in at. And hopefully by the end, your ship is not destroyed. I think that is a pretty good description of what you get to do in Space Alert. Space Alert is weird in that the tempo is indeed very much broken up by virtue of its real-time nature. So you spend your 10 minutes playing the game, and then there's the resolution phase, where you determine how unsuccessful you were, because let's be frank, most of the time it's how unsuccessful you were. Which is odd for two reasons. First of all, it's thematically strange, Now, thematically, it makes perfect sense that you're playing in real time. And here it's meant to thematically represent how panicked you are, how harried you are, how everything's happening too fast. You don't have time to to slow down and think. And that's all well and good. But the notion that your ship could have been blasted to pieces in minute six, but you're still playing minutes seven through ten, you know, kind of breaks that immersion, which is fine. Minor quibble. The thing that's really weird about the tempo, however, is after these ten minutes of frenetic chaos you then spend more than 10 minutes resolving the actual game. It's like an elaborated scoring thing because you make no decisions once it's time to adjudicate the game. And while you're doing the real-time plays when you're actually playing, you don't adjudicate anything. So in the first half, you don't resolve anything. And in the second half, you don't make any choices. And the second half, unfortunately, is, is longer than the first. Now, there are some laughs. You do get to see how hilariously badly things went. I thought you fired the gun. No, I thought you fired the gun. Or why did you fire the gun? I already fired the gun. Or any number of variations. You're supposed to get me power. I can't fire the gun unless there's power. You're supposed to power it. Yeah, it's awesome. Exactly. But that's one of the weird things. And it's it's actually one of the stumbling blocks I find in in explaining how the game works. Because you lay it out for people. It's a real-time cooperative game. First, we play all our cards and nothing happens. (laughs) And then... (laughs) After the 10 minutes, we play nothing, and then everything happens. It's a little hard to wrap your head around the first time. Yeah, it comes with a CD. It has a great audio track. even has an app. And they do a really good good job with it. There's sound effects. There's all sorts of cool things that go, go on. Like, there's static. So it's all stuff like that. There's, like, a cool computer voice going on. It's telling, like, aliens are invading your ship. And you're trying to figure out where they're going to be and how close, because all the weapons have a range as well. So you have to sort of figure out, well, this asteroid's coming in, you know, in phase two, but it's not going to be in range of these weapons until, you know, the fifth turn. So we can't do anything until then. This other thing's coming in much faster. We have to deal with that first and then come back and remember that this thing is coming in in turn five. And it's... It's one. Of, it really is one of my favorite games. It's been in my collection since almost the beginning, and it's still it's still there. It does require some very, very, very head hurty type of calculations. It's like, all right, this thing is showing up in turn five. In turn six, it's moving forward. This space is okay. So by turn seven, it's going to be within the movement band that we want it to do. So I need to fire a missile in turn eight because by the time it hits it in turn nine, it's then going to be close enough that the missile hits, etc., etc., etc. So lots of these kinds of calculations going on again in real time. All the while, Walker's yelling at you to give him power for his guns because that's all he ever wants to do. There's a lot of plate spinning to be done. 
And that's even ignoring the fact that there's tremendous room for specialization in this game. Even without any of the sort of bells and whistles introduced by some of the variant or advanced rules, more on all those later, you do need someone to take care of internal threats. You do need someone to take care of the external threats. You probably need someone to keep an eye on the energy. You probably need someone trying to keep some sort of big picture view of things, not in a quarterbacky way, but again, in sort of the good delegating sort of way. The, the person who's like, wait, has anyone dealt with the space amoeba? Maybe someone should go deal with the space amoeba. And then on top of this is something that's absolutely hilarious and I think really serves to indicate both the kind of thing you need to take care of and the tone of the game. That someone needs to go wiggle the mouse. Because this, despite the fact that it's a sci-fi spaceship, it's still running an old-timey Windows screensaver. And if you don't wiggle the mouse the screen goes dark, which then in turn shuts down all the ship systems. And so everyone loses a turn unless you wiggle the mouse on a regular basis, which is ridiculous, but awesome. But awesome. Yeah, and just to chime in on what you're talking about, the fact that everyone has to deal with something, I really feel as though everyone feels like they're contributing. There's no, like in some other co-op games, someone can just like wander off and, you know, it's like, oh, I'll just go search for a weapon or I'll just search this turn or I'll just do something. Like, I th- I really feel as though if everyone is not doing what they need to do, then you're going to fail. And it really feels like you are part of the game, regardless of what's going on. Well, the game is so immersive that sometimes that's deceptive, but it still works. Sometimes people, all they do is they wander off to one section of the ship, hit the gun twice, and then hit the gun another couple times a few turns later, and by the end of the game, of the 12 slots, they've only played five or so cards, and none of them have been particularly stellar. But they're still involved because of the pace of the game. They can still contribute to the planning. They can try to take the cognitive load off of some people in terms of calculating when something's going to be in range or tracking damage, all these kinds of things. And as you say, part of this is because of how the app works. Part of this is just the real-time chaos. Part of this is how cooperation is a necessity which is the, the excellent corollary to quarterbacking being impossible because you can't quarterback, you need to cooperate. And the theme does such a good job of, of conveying what's going on as well that, that that part at least requires very little difficulty. I've talked about how the game is very hard to teach, but you don't have to worry about people not grasping onto what's going on because the theme is so, so present and funny. I'd, I'd actually like to ask you a question here because – I think the difficulty in teaching it is one of the biggest stumbling blocks to Space Alert. It's a 10-minute game. It'd probably take you about a half hour to play, all told. But it's really, really hard to introduce new players. You basically have one of two options in my experience. And I'd like to hear if if your experience is different, because we were both introduced to the game in different contexts. You either throw them in the deep end and say, okay, here's what all the cards do. Here's what all the stations do. Don't worry. It'll all make sense, and we're all going to die. That sometimes works but tends to be pretty overwhelming for many people. The second option is to go through the tutorial missions, of which there are three, which are fine and do a very good job of showing people how to play the game, but if you already know how to play the game, they are incredibly dull because the tension is very low. The the first couple scenarios are impossible to lose. So you know that the it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to come out of it at the other end. And there you're literally spending three sessions in a row just so someone can get up to speed. I don't like either of these two solutions. And I've generally, it depends on my mood, what, what I tend to do at the time of, what do you do? I love the first solution. It's just, this makes you go, (laughs) this makes you go left. This makes you go right. And I hit the play button and off we go. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. You only, I I believe you're on record as saying that moving left is not a game. You just tell them left and right. There's left, right, up, down, fire, hit the buttons. I tell them what all the cards do. 
and then there is a pause button on the on the CD or the app, right? So when a threat comes in, I just sort of pause it then and just sort of quickly explain this means in during this phase, this is going to happen when it's and we're not going to be able to fire at it. So don't, you know, try to shoot until it's, you know, down here and then I hit play again and off we go again. And and because it, it's it's a it's one of those games where you don't quite understand what's going on until you get to the resolution phase. And it's like sort of like, oh, that's what's going to happen. It's like, oh, I see. We can't both use the elevator at the same time. It's like, oh, I can't shoot the weapon if there's no power. Or once I've fired the missiles three times, I can't keep hammering the button because all the missiles are gone. That's actually really clever. I don't know. It's it's so it's so simple and elegant that I, that I think it's probably how I'm going to try to do things going forward. Thanks very much for the suggestion. No problem. So that's mostly the main game. I think you want to talk a bit about the expansion. I haven't got a chance to play much of the expansion because mostly this is one of these games. I know when I talk about co-op games, I want to lose ninety uh, percent of the time. This one falls definitely into that. If if I win Space Alert, then I am not having uh, a good time. Space <laughs> Space Alert, we describe it as uh, when you go to play Space Alert, you take your pants off, put them on your head, run around like a maniac because the fire has started on the ship and all is lost. So normally we're just, normal, you know, either teaching new people or just running the first few scenarios. So we, didn't, we don't get into the expansion much because there are crazy, crazy things in this expansion. So the expansion's got a number of different things. Let me just defer talk of the expansion for just half a moment because I think this is where some of uh, where our experiences are different. When things go bad in Galaxy Trucker, and they're not very similar games in a number of ways, but they're similar in that things can go terribly wrong. When things go bad in Galaxy Trucker, I have a very good time watching ships fall apart, even if they're my own ship. It's fun to see what's left, and and you know your perfectly crafted plan goes to crap, and you then have to limp towards the finish line. Space Alert, I think, wants to work that way. And for many people, and for you as well, it seems to work that way. But for me, it's never worked that way. For me in Space Alert, games can go in one of two ways, neither of which I find perfectly satisfying. One of them is everything goes perfectly. All the plans worked out. You did the math properly. You kill everything when it shows up. And you cruise to the finish line. And everything just works fine. The second way things can happen is you're off by one small detail. Somebody didn't wiggle a mouse in time. Someone fired a gun when it was dry. Someone didn't fire the gun at the right time. Two people tried to use the lift at the same time. And then usually, sometimes, very rarely, it then lets you limp towards the finish line. But far more often, that single mistake leads to a cascade of nightmarish terribleness. Because this is a game about timing and precision. And in Space Alert, if you're off by a single turn, congratulations. That enemy is going to rip you to shreds. And once it's finished ripping you to shreds, your guns don't work properly anymore. And that means you're not going to be able to defend yourself against anybody else. Which is fine. I don't mind when a game goes catastrophically wrong, but the problem is, is that, that it, it seems like such a narrow tightrope walk where the fun chaos of things going wrong but still getting through isn't as prevalent as I would like it to be. Am I making any sense? You are? No, totally. That's how our games usually work out, is that we're little, you know, we all plan it out, everything looks great until about, you know, the eighth turn where, you know, we've destroyed everything, everything's all lined up, and then the asteroid moves you know, one step closer and we say, well, we don't have to worry about that because Trevor said he was going to go take care of that and we're good. And Trevor looks over and goes, that asteroid, 
I was taking care of the blue sector asteroid, and then this giant ball of death just slowly, you know, creeps towards the ship, and we all look down at our cards knowing that no one's taking care of this, and then it just, you know, shears off half of the ship, and those are the great story moments of Space Alert. Sure, this is, and and just to be clear, this is not a complaint about difficulty, because Space Alert, especially with the expansion, and I swear I'm going to get to it in a moment, you can make... Well, you can't make it as easy as you would like. <laughs> There's only so easy Space Alert gets, which is not particularly easy, especially for newer players. But you can make it about as hard as you like. There are three different level difficulty levels of cards, easiest, middle, and hardest, and you can mix them together. So if you want difficulty level one, effectively, you play with the easiest cards. But if you want a slight step up, you then mix in some of the medium difficulty level cards. And then when you're done with that, you play only with medium difficulty level cards. For reference... Despite having played dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and I love Space Alert, I've never been able to win a medium difficulty mission. Just never. I've never... There was this time when a friend of mine back in Cambridge was banging his head against the wall over and over because that's just what he likes to do. It's like, okay, we're going to do this. We played session after session after session against yellow difficulty uh, enemies, and we never came close. Just never happened. So and that's fine. So the difficulty ceiling is 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 very high and there's a very high skill ceiling because you do get better at the game. I just wish that there were slightly more victories and experiences in Space Alert that that you have in other co-op games or games like Galaxy Trucker where a number of things go bad but you pull through at the end. You, I don't tend to have many experiences like that. Once something goes wrong, it's just a cascade of nightmarish awfulness and nothing goes right. Again, most of the time. It's true, yeah. If you miss a turn, everyone slides their cards over. Or if you get mixed up on the lift, you both try to use the lift at the same time. And then that throws off two programs and it's just, it's done cascading death. Yeah. And for what it's worth, those are my only criticisms of the game. It's hard to teach. It takes longer to resolve than it takes to play. But the resolution is sometimes amusing. And there's this very, very narrow tightrope walk where the mission either ends without any problems or a single problem causes you to die. That's far too often. And I just wish there were slightly more of the the, the meaty middle. So let's talk about the expansion. Well, let me hit my bad points as we got the quick bat. You said those are your only ones. Let's hit my couple that I have No, no, no. Only I get to delay a talk of the expansion. No, you don't. Um... It has an audio component. So in like game nights where you have multiple tables or in a convention setting, then it usually doesn't work out too bad. Either you're upsetting other people or they look over like, you know, you're on from another planet because, Why you know, do you go to cons where people tell you to not have fun playing Meeple Circus, where people tell you that you're making too much noise because you're playing Space Alert? These cons sound terrible. Well, it's just the way it rolls. And the other negative point I have is sometimes people need to win. Right? There's some games that they think they should win all the time. Or, Are these the con people again? Yeah, they're probably the con people again. And and in this game, you just don't do that. You don't win a lot, so people could get frustrated quickly, and it just wouldn't be the game for them. Those are my only two negative points about the game. Oh, yeah. So if people have a low th- uh, frustration threshold, this is probably not a game for them again, because was, as you both said, a single mistake can lead to disaster. Exactly. Now I will allow you to talk about the expansion. Oh, that's very generous of you. Thank you so much for your magnanimity, Walker. So about the app, this game in many ways was very much ahead of its time, which seems strange to say of a game that's only 10 years old. But on this show, we've talked before about games with apps and games with paperwork. We talked about how everything needs to have a campaign, and this seems to be the new trend. So in 2008, even in 2008, 
there was the strong expectation that you were going to be playing Space Alert with an app. Very few people lugged around CD players to play this game. Usually it was on either some kind of MP3 player with an attached speaker or some kind of smartphone even even 10 years ago. And then people started playing around with it, sort of randomizing the formula, because the game comes, Space Alert comes with a CD of, of a certain number of legit missions. But basically, people cracked, cracked the code and reverse engineered a way to randomize the missions. And I played with lots of randomized missions. I played the same missions over and over. They all key off of a random deck, so you can play the same mission over and over, and that's fine. So in many ways, in 2008, this is one of the first games to run off an app. And a quick caveat to that, people have also put out different apps where you can have a totally Star Trek theme to your Space Alert games. I thought that was amazing. That has all the Star Trek sound effects and the and the standard, you know, Gene Ronberry's wife voice and everything. It's really nice. It's true. I've, I've heard some of those. They're kind of cool. And so in 2008, when this game was basically an app-driven game, that was very much ahead of the curve. And then two years later, when it released its expansion, it was again ahead of its time because it introduced persistent campaign elements where you had a character that could level up and develop new skills. And this is, again, a trend that is very, very, very strong over the past couple of years. And this is something that came out in 2010. Back then, it was sort of a throwback to the old days of Warhammer Quest because that wasn't very common at the time. And it was it really gave the game, in my estimation, a shot in the arm. Space Alert is by no means my favorite Vlada game. It's not my favorite co-op game. But playing it as a campaign experience eight years ago when nothing else had a campaign really, really made it stand head and shoulders above its immediate competitors. So that's one element that the expansion introduced. Now, I've commented on this before. I'm a little bit sick and tired of having paperwork in my games, and so I'm not. I'm less keen on the campaign element of Space Alert, but it was ahead of its time. So there you go. Another thing that the expansion introduced was just more cards. Some more cards of base difficulty. Some more difficult. Uh, some more cards of a yet new crazy difficulty. A difficulty that kind of, quite frankly, makes me scared. I look at the cards and try to imagine any universe in which I could defeat them. I'm wondering if that's why they're in there. It's just like after you get destroyed on, you know, basic, you know, easy mode, you look through the cards and you just show them to your friends and you go, look at this, and you go, oh my god. Things could always be worse. It's like, oh, Space Ninja. On every other turn, it stuns everyone. On every even <laughs> turn, it, it gasses everyone. And it's, it's really, it's terrible. Space Alert is very much like Galaxy Trucker, though, in that... If you get a handle on things, now again, this is a horizon that neither of, us have, ha, neither of us has reached, but some other people do. Once you get a handle on things, once you're able to get through a mission unscathed, then you're thankful that there are ways to make the game more difficult. If you're starting out in Galaxy Trucker, starting out with the rough red head cards is just stupid and is going to lead to frustration. If you're just starting out in Space Alert, starting out with the yellow or red difficulty is nonsense. But... If it's the case that you're an experienced crew member and you've got an experienced crew and those green missions start getting trivial, because again, a mission where everything goes right can be on just on the, just shy of boring, to be perfectly honest. So then it's good that there is yet more horizons available for people uh, to do this. And after all, the expansion for Space Alert is called New Frontiers, which is very appropriate. It does indeed literally introduce New Frontiers. Another thing that the game introduces above and beyond all this is new skills for the campaign element. So as your character levels up, they get new special skills to do and new and better ways to wiggle the mouse. For example, they can wiggle the mouse remotely without having to be on the bridge, which is an amazing ability that has saved our hide more than once. 
And it also introduces some things that are purely cosmetic but very much appreciated. Little badges for each role. It's like, here's a badge for the captain. Here's a badge for the comms officer. Here's a badge for the engineer. And it's just a neat little thematic element to undergird the specialization that we talked about, how it's good for somebody. They don't have to be the one to go and do it, but at least it's good if somebody's got their eye on power supply or what have you. The other thing that it did, and this is a very, very minor note, but I think it's worth mentioning, the rulebook is just as funny and engaging as the base game rulebook, but the tone is entirely different. Instead of a sort of Hitchhiker's Guide for the Galaxy, madcap, terrible things are happening, but we're going to laugh it off sort of um, tone, it's got the tone of sort of a more Black Mirror-esque, the terrifying consequences of technology but we're okay with it kind of dystopian satire. It's really quite striking. The, the section on cloning especially is 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 uh, worth reading. It, it was just striking how they could make a rulebook as compelling as the base game rulebook, but an entirely different tone and theme while still in the same universe. I think it's a testament to how seriously CGE takes rulebook writing, and they, they really are head and shoulders above a lot of, other, uh, a lot of uh, their peers. So I recommend the expansion even if you're not uh, played to death the base game, if you're interested in having a campaign element. Because generally speaking, if you're willing to deal with the paperwork, uh, a campaign element in games like this, once, you're, uh, once you've played a few missions, is, is, is pretty good. I'm definitely looking forward to trying it. And that is Space Alert from CGE. Now on to the topic of the day, which is problems with multiplayer conflict games. So in the beginning, there was Risk. Yes, there are games that predate Risk that are sort of multiplayer conflict games, but I think few games sort of epitomize the problems in the genre the way Risk does. Call it dudes on a map, call it multiplayer conflict games, whatever, what have you. There are some problems that games like this have. Number one, player elimination. Now, most modern games don't have player elimination. It's a huge red flag. Very few games are willing to even contemplate it anymore. And I, for one, think that's definitely for the good. There are some people who definitely situate on the Ameritrash spectrum of things that talk about how player elimination really adds teeth to the game, and then people can just get up and do other things. I, for one, really, really don't appreciate it. And I can tell from the look on your face, Walker, that you too don't like player elimination. Well, definitely, it it ups the tension, but I, I don't think in today's day and age there's a place for it. I think there's a there they can come up with much clever mechanics than player elimination. It also ups the tension if you promise to shank someone in the eye if they lose, but I don't think that necessarily makes it for a better game experience. This is this is true. Okay, so player elimination we agree needs to go and it mostly has. Very few modern designs have player elimination, whether they're multiplayer conflict games or anything else. But there are two issues and to me these are some of the the, the, the two central issues in multiplayer conflict games that keep cropping up all the time. One of them is turtling. You win by being very defensive and or not being attacked. And another is kingmaking. Namely the notion that if A and B fight, C will end up winning. Or that in many instances, you're not going to be in a position to win or you're not going to be in a position to advance your own interests, but all you can do is determine who gets hurt. You're in a position of just handing out spite. You know, that was one of the reasons why I wasn't a huge fan of the directed spite mechanism in uh, Champions of Midgard. I should stop talking about that game. Yeah, you're going to get in more trouble, Mark. Yeah, apparently I don't like any games. It's uh, it's what the internet says. It's very, yeah, very off-putting. And, and, and how are we supposed to get sponsors and free games and all of the things I started this podcast for, except not if you don't speak your mind, which is the whole reason why we started this in the first place. Anyhow. And it's, it's striking because 
there are a couple of modern designs and even ones that I that I'm interested in trying that don't that haven't seemed to internalize some of these problems. I'm talking specifically, and I hate to, to prejudge a game before I've played it, and I'm very much looking forward to trying them, and indeed, when I do, I'll make sure to let everyone know what I think. Uh, GKR, Giant Killer Robots, the multiplayer mode has you attacking whoever you want. And one of the ways you can win is by being the last person standing. So this, this indeed, this, this brings player elimination back as an option. There's, a, there's a, a more stable way whereby the game ends the moment someone dies and then you, everyone else tallies up their score, which is fine. So that gets rid of the player elimination. But then, again, you win in that context by not being picked on, by not being attacked, by standing back and let everyone else do, do your heavy work for you. So that's both turtling and kingmaking. Another one is the Street Fighter miniatures game. I'm, I'm an old-timey Street Fighter fan. I'm very dubious about the design lineage of the Street Fighter miniatures game. But the pieces look awesome, and I'm an utter sucker for anything that involves Sagat. So I'm probably going to give it a try. But again, I've seen rules explanations for the multiplayer mode. The multiplayer mode is, it when it's a free-for-all, pick somebody and attack them. And your job is to make sure that you you don't get knocked out. That's just nonsense. I it just I've never seen it work. Another game uh, uh, very similar that I have played is Yashima Legend of the Kami Masters. And again, it's they're in the free-for-all mode there. It's just pick somebody and attack them and wail on them. And there, there's no player elimination. Instead, you have this fascinating intensification of the Kingmaker problem where if you've been knocked out, you go into what's called recovery mode and then you actually get stronger, but you're not eligible for the victory. So there you are with all your offensive capability intact, but you're not eligible for the win. So all you're in charge of, all you get to do for the rest of the game is decide who loses, which seems really weird. And what I've heard people say, and this defense strikes me as nonsense, is oh well you know this is this is why ta- this is why table talk is so important. It's really a game of diplomacy and negotiation. No no no, that's whining. I've played negotiation games. What they're talking about is whining. Don't hit me, hit them. They're winning, or they hit you before, or whatever. Ugh. Yeah. Everyone's picking on me. Yeah. So, <laughs> I I can see that you had this these same experiences. Yeah. Well, so we've talked about what what games do it well then, in your opinion. Absolutely. So. So one of the ways you can avoid these things is by making combat transactional in nature. It's very difficult when the game is about attritional wars of losses where you're holding on to dirt. So an example, these games can be relatively simple and straightforward, like Small World, for example. In Small World, there's a constant drive for expansion. And so you're, there's this constant pressure to expand into new territories, and you're mostly driven by whatever low-hanging fruit exists. You're very rarely encouraged to pile on to somebody. It's not so much about hurting them as it is for getting stuff for yourself. Plus, there's a constant decline and rise element in Small World. So if it's the case that you get your face handed to you, well, you just come back with a different group of people. And so there's this dynamism that really helps things. And Small World is a really, really simple game. Indeed, without special powers, Small World isn't really a game at all. No, and like the, like we said last time, the fact that they keep the victory points secret, you're not going to be piling on the winner, right? Precisely. Another game that does this really well is Kemet. In Kemet, combat is usually almost purely transactional. When you fight somebody, sometimes it's for what they're holding, but often it's because you just want to win the fight. And it also really does a good job of making sure that losing a fight isn't too painful. You, in fact, get some benefits from losing a fight in Kemet. You can just pick up and go somewhere else. And as a result, the king-making opportunities tend to be minimized a little bit because if A and B fight 
and they both get weakened in the course of the conflict, there are strong game incentives and strong game mechanisms that allow both of them to just withdraw and show up somewhere else. And that really, really helps, again, with this notion of dynamism, about withdrawing weakened forces. So you're not constantly involved in this sort of quagmire of declining forces where someone else is just going to show up the last minute. And so that takes care of a lot of the turtling problems, it takes care of a lot of the king-making problems, and really helps make sure that, that things keep moving. I'll mention finally, in terms of uh, a game that does this really well, uh, in terms of avoiding these problems, is one of my favorite games, Senji, by Bruno Catalan and Serge Leger. The good, the good Bruno, in my estimation, the bad Bruno, in your estimation. And this is, this is a game with highly transactional combat, and this is, I think, super important for games like this, multiple paths to victory. Now, Senji isn't just a simple dudes on a map game in many ways, but it shares a number of similarities with games like Rising Sun or like Blood Rage in that it's not just about winning fights and holding dirt. That's one way to get points if you want to. If you want to devote the resources, if you want to spend the time in order to specialize to do that, and that's how you want to win the game, that's an option. If you want to focus on other things, if you want to try to make your points elsewhere, you can do that too. And then it becomes a question of trying to identify your targets, trying to go after the low-hanging fruit, and recognizing again that you need to stay flexible, take advantage of the opportunities that present to you. So again, you don't have these quagmires, you don't have turtling, turtling isn't an option, it doesn't get you points, and you don't have to worry so much about kingmaking. And so it's that kind of flexibility and dynamism that I really look for in these multiplayer conflict games. Sure. The only thing I want to bring up about kingmaking would be a card game called Shadow Fist, which I played quite a bit in almost every game, unfortunately played out the same way, where someone would make a play for victory, everyone would exhaust themselves trying to stop them, and then the one person that held back from trying to stop the victor would then have enough power left over and would, you know, crush and win the game. Yeah, it's also known as the kill Dr. Lucky problem, where everyone needs to spend resources in order to prevent somebody from winning, and so it's just a question of convincing everyone else that they need to spend the resources and not you. I like Cosmic Encounter a great deal, but oh my gosh, many games of Cosmic Encounter end that way. And so it's often, often the end game is somewhat unsatisfying. So we brought up Kemet. The other thing I want to say about uh, a point that we haven't brought up yet is uh, not being able to attack who you need to. Like someone's winning or someone has a victory condition or or you need to take someone down a peg and you just can't get to them because you're hemmed in. And it seems as though whoever designed Kemet took all the problems that we're talking about and just removed them. So in Kemet, where everyone starts, they all have their own little castle where they start and everyone's, even though it doesn't look that way on the map, everyone's exactly the same number of spaces away from each other. Even the guy on the, the furthest side of the board is exactly five away and the person directly to your right is exactly five away and there's all these uh, monoliths out in the middle of the board that let you teleport all over the place so never in that game do you feel as though you're hemmed in or can't get to where you need to be and yet it still has so you might feel as though then why even have the board right just you know fight where you need to fight but there are some instances where there is some strategy to placement as well. Yeah, that dynamism, I think, is really well instituted in in having this ability to be able to strike at anybody. It seems like a weird thing to say, given that we talked about how kingmaking is a problem. But in many ways, it's worse when somebody has built up a defensive bulwark and just nobody can get to them. 
or they're the only way to get to the player you want to attack for whatever reason. Maybe it's to stop them from winning, or maybe it's just because they're the target you want to attack or they have the thing you need to win, and the only way to get to them is blocked by your ally or terrain you can't cross or somebody else that you just don't want to attack. Eclipse does this all the time. I tell new players when playing Eclipse, be very careful about who you ally with because you cannot cross through their territories. And if it's near the end of the game and you see that your rival is past one of your allies, well, then you're completely boned. And that's one of the ways in which Eclipse is more static than I think it really wants to be. But Kemet is so dynamic, you're always able, if you're willing to pay for it, to get where you need to go. It's never it's never trivial, so positioning does indeed matter. And knowing which fight, no, fights to pick when is super important. But you're never going to be in a position of Kemet saying, this person's winning, you have to go stop them. The response to that is, yeah, why don't you go do it? We all have our own problems here, and no one's going to be able to say, oh, well, you know, the map says I can't get there. I hate it when a multiplayer conflict game gives me a map and no way to traverse it, and I'm just locked in. That was one of my key complaints about Cry Havoc. In Cry Havoc, the moment a fight starts, the region is locked down for an incredible proportion of the game. There's no way to get in or out of that. It just makes this huge roadblock. Agreed. So on my list, I got games that do things well. So it seems so pseudo-multiplayer games, like we're talking about Axe and Allies... Uh, War of the Ring, Star Wars Rebellion, where they say they have multiple multiple players, but it's not really. They break it into two teams. So we all know that, the, you know, one versus one works, and that's why these games work so well, because it's really only a two-player game and broken up pseudo, you know. Yeah, the same is true of Yashima. Yashima works fine in, as, a, as a team game. I suspect the Street Fighter Minis game will work fine as a team game, yeah. And you've already brought up Eric Lang's games. And not only do they have multiple paths to victory, but even in the combat, like in Rising Sun and in Blood Rage and, and uh, Chaos in the Old World, during each combat, you have multiple ways to earn victory points within that combat. Fantastic way to do it. Agree wholeheartedly. Combat is usually transactional, but even when it's not... Fighting is only one part of the game, but there's so many different ways in which to implicate fighting into your overall strategy. And then I have Twilight Imperium. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I know. Here we go. So in Twilight Imperium, you have this whole list of different victory point conditions. So and what that does is it sort of not forces you, but, you know, gives you reasons to attack certain sectors of space or certain players or get across the board or to do anything rather than just build your military up and go out and crush the weak person. I will say this about Twilight Imperium. It is slightly more dynamic than it could have been. Given that the movement system is all about locking regions down and then not being able to move anymore, they do at least take seriously the notion of trying to be able to get you way across the board. You don't tend to get blocked by other ships in in the way that you, you do in a lot of other games. The wormholes help a great deal. In many ways... In terms of how open their maps are, Eclipse and Twilight Imperium are kind of studying opposites because in Eclipse, you can move your ships multiple times and so you're not locked down the way you are in Twilight Imperium, but you can get hemmed in by your allies and you can get pinned by other enemy ships. Whereas in Twilight Imperium, you only get to move them once in almost all instances, but there's a greater fluidity in how that movement works. All right, now I got games like Game of Thrones, Diplomacy, and Forbidden Stars, where you put out all your orders ahead of time, so you have none of this notion of picking it, picking on the weak person, or you know, looking for your your you know your the weak points, or taking advantage of situations because you have all your orders out on the board already. So you just sort of have to let it play out and take the advantages where you need to, and I think that really works well for those games. Yeah, there's there's a little more attrition in, in Game of Thrones than I'd like. And there is still the notion on attacking an army that's already retreated. 
So if turn order works out the right way, and if you happen to be in the right position, you can indeed swoop down and just massacre somebody who had the misfortune of being attacked uh, already. And there is a fair bit of whining in Game of Thrones. I'm not winning, they're winning. I may be holding more strongholds, but really they're winning. Uh, but I, I do grant you, hidden orders do help disrupt things a fair bit. All right, next on my list is Shogun. And Kemet also falls into this, where you're limited to how many attacks you can make each turn. So like in Shogun, you can only make two attacks. In Kemet, you only have two move and attack options. And I really feel as though that limits, you know, from going all out where risk, all, it's all it is about attacking. In games where you're limited, when you're limited to what, how many attacks you can make, you really make sure that those attacks matter and they're very precision attacks. And I think that really helps this problem. In Kemet, I think it works well, precisely because the map is so open. But in many ways, to my mind, Shogun, and we're talking here about Volenstein, the Volenstein Shogun slash Immortals engine, epitomizes a lot of this problem because you've got this large map, and because you only have a certain number of attacks, and those attacks are precious, you end up with a relatively static board position and a relatively static set of borders. As a result, I may be completely unable to attack you simply because I lack the necessary movement capability to get to where you are. Immortals was slightly better at this, uh, and Wallenstein is slightly better at this, uh, a little bit better than Shogun simply because of the shape of the map. But given that the the map of Japan is just this long straight thing, if I'm on the other end of the island, I'm not getting to you at all, even if I want to. I think that comes with experience, though. I think, I think when people are drafting the territories at the beginning of the game, everyone tends to want to, you know, clump their things together for the best defense. But once you see that you really need to be spread out through the whole map, I think once they've played, you know, the second and third time, then that is less of a problem. It's just one of my one of my objections to Shogun, and indeed one of the reasons why I prefer Blood Rage over Rising Sun is because it has a greater sense of this dynamism that I was talking about. In Blood Rage, you can get to where you need to go if you're willing to spend the resources. In Rising Sun, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you're, you're trapped just by the geography of the board. In Shogun, I felt even, even more trapped. And yeah, sure, with more experience with the game, I'd probably do a better job of that. But what I like about Small World, what I like about Kemet, what I like about Senji, is that if I'm willing to take the hit... I'm able to redeploy to be able to seek out greener pastures elsewhere and or strike at the person I need to strike at. Yeah, I forgot to throw Cyclades into that sort of mix as well. Because in order to attack in Cyclades, you have to draft the particular god. They have a great drafting system at the beginning of each turn where you draft each god and it gives you the bonus. I think you mean an auction. I said draft, yes, sorry. Auction, great auction system where you auction the gods at the beginning of each turn. Uh, the Titans sort of mix that up where you can attack more when you have the Titans out, but still it's that same sort of limited number of attacks and, you know, make sure they count type thing. Cyclades actually reminds me of one of the features, again, in Rising Sun. Both games feature elements whereby in order to do something successfully, you need to have taken advantage of several different systems in succession. What I mean by this is in Cyclades, in order to get an attack off successfully, you probably need to have won Poseidon at some point to get your boats in position, and then you probably need to win Ares in order to get your troops into position. And these have to have to happen at the right times. And so there's a certain fragility. You need to line your ducks up in a row very carefully. The same thing is true in Rising Sun. In order to get your soldiers to where they need to be, you probably needed to have had deploys in the right order and or purchased the right power, and then you need to have the strength necessary when the fight happens and or the necessary 
specific cards to capitalize off the thing you need. We talked about this when we reviewed Rising Sun. We talked about how there are lots of different subsystems, and in order to do well, you need to get them all to work together in the right way. And so it's very, very tricky, and in a way, the path to victory is very fragile. This is not a knock on the game. This is just to say that in order to get things done, you need to get a lot of different elements together. And that, again, is probably one of the reasons why I prefer Blood Rage to Rising Sun, because it allows you to be slightly more improvisational, for lack of a lack of another word. But I, I do think that Cyclades does offer another uh, recourse, in, in part because I think Cyclades is more of an auction game than it is actually a combat game. But it is a, a, an interesting way to, to involve multiplayer conflict in a slightly new way by virtue of that economic system. That's all I've got. So I think in order to summarize, there, there are three things that I look for in a multiplayer conflict game that, so that we don't boil down into turtling or king-making or, or situations where you can't attack other people. The map needs to have a certain degree of openness. Now, whether that's just purely the, ge- the geography of the map or your movement powers or a combination of both, so that you're able to get where you need to be. Obviously, positioning can still be relevant, but if you're willing to spend the resources, you can get there. Komet does this very well. Senji does this very well. Small World does this by virtue of its decline element. I like it when at all possible if a multiplayer conflict game has multiple paths to victory because then either by virtue of leveraging combat in a slightly different way, like you do in Blood Rage and Rising Sun, or because fighting is just one of the ways you're going to get points, like in a game of Senji, that adds to the flexibility. And finally, I do like it when combat tends to be as much as possible transactional. Namely, if I'm going to fight you, it's not because I need to hold onto the dirt for three turns, but it's because I need to win the fight or something to happen in the fight that I want to have happen. This can help undercut the king-making problems that you often have, and so you don't get involved in sort of an attritional match where you just watch the pieces uh, fall apart, and then the third player just waltzes in after the dust has settled to claim everything. And again, these features tend to be very prevalent in most of your modern multiplayer conflict games whenever possible. And when they come together, they can really offer offer some novel new takes on fighting. And Eric Lang does this very well, of course, but uh, there are lots of other games that do it well. And so you really do get this the, the same a lot of the same virtues in your old school game of Risk. You get to punch people in the face real hard, and who doesn't like to do that? You get to conquer the world, you get to see vast armies spread out, but at the end of the day, you don't get all these quagmire elements that you got in games that were, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old. I agree with all your points, which really surprised me when these, when a newer conflict game comes out and they just rehash it with the old, all the old problems. Like, it really makes me wonder whether these guys have played any of these newer games or even realized that there's problems at all. In some ways, it really frustrates me when a lot of the game comes together in interesting ways, but it just runs headlong into these standard multiplayer conflict game problems. That's exactly what I was talking about when I was uh, talking about Path of Light and Shadow. A lot of Path of Light and Shadow, I really like the way it does deck building, the way it does building buildings, the way it upgrades cards. All that stuff is great. I even like the way fighting works in terms of the actual fights, but all the consequences of fighting, it's, it's, it's attritional. The map is really closed and it's hard to get across the map. Sometimes it's impossible. It encourages kingmaking, it encourages whining, all these, all these things that had they addressed, I think Path of Light and Shadow could have been a really excellent design. Agreed. And that is our topic, problem with multiplayer conflict games. On a quick note, don't forget, episode 25, giving away a full Kickstarter version of Massive Darkness, so make sure you tune in for that. And if you like the episode, make sure you tell a friend. Thank you so much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-A-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at all the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Long About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our new Board Game Geek Guild. We are guild number 3236. That's com slash guild slash 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. I've been very, very pleased at the feedback we've been getting on the on the guild. Some really good discussions. Uh, people much smarter than either of us. Well, I mean, smarter than me, anyway. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.